Thanks for joining me for the Friday Reporter Podcast. My name is Lisa Camuso Miller, and I am a public affairs professional in Washington, D.C., talking to reporters from all across the country about how it is they do their work and how it is we as communication professionals can do ours better. Thanks so much for joining us today for the Friday Reporter Podcast. My friend and colleague today who has joined me, I feel like we've grown up together. Susan Davis <laughs> is the NPR congressional correspondent and a good friend and colleague who uh, really, truly, Sue, it feels like we have known each other for much of our adult life. Thank you for being with me. It's so true. And like, I just thinking about how much has changed, not just in our lives, but in like politics since we've known each other. Like, I feel like we've, we've lived lifetimes in the past 10 or 20 years. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I'm not sure what the conversion rate is. I mean, they say what dog years is, is seven to one. I mean, I'm not sure what politics <laughs> is, but girl, it's gotta be more I'm than just 732. <laughs> I think. So, uh, so what's so neat to me about your background is that I mean, you grew up in, in Philadelphia, you came to D.C. for school, and, and you became a journalist, and you've worked for, I think, some of the best publications and outlets in town. Tell me, you know, how did that happen? How did that get started? Tell me a little bit about your background and, and how you got to be where you are today at NPR. I always say that I always tell people I'm an accidental journalist because you talk to so many people, especially in political journalism, who are like, I was the editor of my high school paper. I was a political junkie. I was tracking election returns in the eighth grade. I was none of those things. Um, I was the first member of my family to go to college and I went to American University here in D.C., and I had no idea what I wanted to do. I didn't really come from a family that, like, you talked about careers, right? Mm -hmm. You talked about jobs. Um, a lot of members of my family are police officers or firemen, like, come from that sort of blue-collar background. So thinking about, like, a career wasn't, like, a conversation that was part of my, my upbringing. And when I was in college, um, really randomly, I, you know... I, I, I was a nanny, frankly. I was a nanny for a family here in D.C. who I'm still very, very close with. I'm sort of like their third daughter now. Um, but it was a family full of journalists. And so when I was a senior in college, I needed an internship to graduate as part of my major. And the great thing about D.C. is there's um, internships all over the town. So I was looking for something to do. And I really liked to write. I was, I was a good writer and I enjoyed it. And the mom of the family that I was nanny for, who was a journalist at the time, was like, you should be a journalist. Like, journalism is the best thing in the world. Mm -hmm. uh, and I was like, well, that sounds fun. Yeah, right. <laughs> so my first job in journalism, which also tells you how much things have changed, was at People Magazine. Because People Magazine at the time... Uh, in the robust salad days of journalism, had six domestic bureaus, including a bureau in Washington that had about six to eight employees at the time. Um, paid was another key bonus of uh, an internship. Mm -hmm. So I did this for about six months, and I totally got the bug. I, it was the most fun I could have ever have possibly had. Uh, I knew that I didn't want a job that I sat at a desk all day. I sure. knew that I wanted something that like got me out into the world and. I was sent to the Hill to cover hearings and to parties and to places. And uh, it was thrilling and exciting to just have to walk up to people and talk to them. And it was what a great first job. I had no idea or oh, internship, but I had no idea. People magazine. Cool. And I was a stringer for them for years after that. So, but then it, it sort of segued into other internships and then into how I got into politics is my first full-time job was um, on the 2002 election cycle. I was a research assistant for the Almanac of American Politics, which is sort of one of these Bibles of politics um, that I learned. All, and it was a redistricting year. So I learned all about redistricting and all about Congress oh. and every single member of wow. Congress. 
And then I got a job for a Hill publication and it just kind of grew from there. That's fantastic. That's so fantastic. I mean, I had no idea. I, I knew people had a, had a outlet in DC for a while, but I didn't realize that you had been there. How fun though. So fun. It was great. So then, so then how, so, you know, so you cover the Hill for, for many years and you've done, uh, my gosh, I mean, it would be a long list for me to list all of the great publications that you've worked for, but you've been at the Wall Street Journal. I mean, you've been at USA Today, NPR Now. How does that, how is that different? I mean, obviously it's radio, but how is that different for you? Um, how was that transition? How did that go from being from print to radio? How did that work to broadcast? For you? To broadcast, yeah. yeah. Part of the reason why I did it was it obviously wasn't for the job because it was still to cover Congress, which I had already at the time I went to NPR in 2015. At that time, I had been covering Congress for close to 15 years, but I was excited by the medium. It was like, how do you, you always kind of want to be learning new skills, right? Even when you've been covering a beat for a long time, whether it's to write a magazine style piece or uh, a shorter news breaking piece, like the ways we write about the news are different depending on how you work. Mm -hmm. And I'd never worked in broadcast, but I always liked it. Um, and I was then married, soon to be married at the time to um, my now husband, who is like an NPR addict. Like he was one of these people that grew up listening to it in his home. He was a huge podcast fan and he had really got me into NPR and to radio. Um, it was hard. It was like retraining your brain. If you think about um, all the good rules of print journalism, mm-hmm. you basically light on fire for great broadcast journalism. Yeah. It's how you present a story is totally different. Like if you think about a print story, you know, you always want to put all the good stuff at the top. It's like mm-hmm. the inverted triangle thing where you don't, you don't bury your news in the eighth paragraph of your story. You need everything <laughs> in like the first 200 words. Sure. You got to keep and, your audience there. Yeah. But radio is a little bit different. Like someone once described it to me as it's more of like a, a, a boat you're pulling down a stream, right? Like you need to keep people listening. Yeah. So in a radio piece, you can actually have like a bit of news or a surprise at the very end of your story. Like you can deliver it in a different way. Oh, interesting. Um, it's also, I think, uh, and one of the great things about NPR is I think people think it sounds really smart. Like it's, it's just has a sort of an elevated conversational feel to it. Mm-hmm. But I have to tell you, it's like some of this broadcast writing is some of the simplest writing out there. Like you have to just write in a way that the ear can process and you have to write really clear and really simple. And, and that's hard too. I think USA Today was great training for that because USA Today is another brand where you think it's like written on an easy level, but I'm mm-hmm. telling you, it is much harder to write about filibuster reform for USA Today <laughs> than it is for roll call. I bet. Right? Yeah, I bet. Like, you can't talk in those words that are sort of insider words. You have to speak more plainly and more thoughtfully for right. people that are, yeah, audiences that I, aren't necessarily caring about it unless you tell them they have to. I had a time at USA Today where they were changing the filibuster rules in the Senate when Harry Reid went nuclear back in, I think, like 2014 or something. And my editor called me and he was like, look, we want this story for the front page for tomorrow about blowing up the filibuster, but you're not allowed to use the word filibuster in the story. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) He's like, it doesn't mean anything to people, right? So I like that challenge. The thing I've liked about outlets, and I've worked for outlets with super niche audiences where you're just talking to Capitol Hill, and then I've worked for like USA Today and NPR that have these huge national audiences, is I really like the challenge of taking very complex things and making them understandable for people who don't have, who may not, one, not even know they care about that complex thing or know why it should matter to them. Um, And that's hard and it can make it sound easy because it's hard. It's, it sounds easy, but it's hard to write easy. Sure. And so because you've gone from one medium to another and have written in so many different um, formats and so many different models, 
today, you know, are, are, are PR people calling you and pitching you stories or are you really sort of, are you straight up facts? Like these are the things that happened on Capitol Hill today. Like how does that work for you now? Is that a little bit different now that you're there? Uh, a little bit. I mean, I think I get a lot of PR pitches. Honestly, I used to get a lot more pre-pandemic because people would call the office a lot more. Sure. Um, but I think that a lot of people realize that that's kind of wasted phone calls right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, still get a ton of email pitches. Always have. I think also NPR is one of those brands that PR people, whoever you're repping, wants to be on NPR. Absolutely. I don't care who it is. Absolutely. You know, so you do get you get a lot of um you know, I've probably had, I've had a couple of my inbox this week. I think the harder part is that a lot of PR people will clearly just like email, like everyone at a news organization. Yes. And that's like not always an effective way to do it. And I probably, I would probably say 90% of the pitches I get have absolutely nothing to do with the substance I cover. And I've, I I, I have heard that, you know, so your, uh, your interview, I think number uh, 17 or 18 now at this point, Sue, and it's, consistently across the board, the one thing that I hear is that a lot of uh, the pitches that that you and your colleagues get are just not relevant. They're not relevant to what you guys are covering. They're not relevant to what you care about. And I see that from both sides because I have clients who definitely want to be on NPR. They definitely think their story is something that NPR would care about. And I, as a PR person, have to be like, I have to like have a spine and say, I'm sorry, but I'm not sure that this rises to that level. Like, I don't yeah. think that that's there. And unfortunately, a lot of the people, a lot of the kids and a lot of the, you know, PR people that are that are doing those pitches don't have the position inside the firm or the position with the client to be able to say no. So they send these things out with the hope that, you know, maybe just maybe something's going to stick. But um, but it's a gigantic waste of your time, too. It's like, and I'm sure by now it's it's something that rolls right off your back. Like, that's cute, but I can't use that. And you keep moving along, but... It is uh, it is definitely a challenge on the PR side to try to to land those things in a way that makes sense without wasting media time. I try. I mean, I do not do this a lot. Sometimes I try to be helpful to people because there's like a human being in me that is like, we're all just trying to do our jobs. Yeah. Right. Like, I'm sure a lot of that PR work, it's got to be really thankless. Like, and I, I'm, I have a soft spot for people that have to do lots of thankless work. So sometimes if somebody sends me a pitch that like, is not at all related to anything I would do, but I'm like, Hey, I know someone in my news organization that might actually care about that. If I think the pitch is interesting enough, I might be like, Hey, you should reach out to our science reporter or you should try our arts desk or like might try to like at least advance the ball for someone, but it would have to be like a pretty good, interesting pitch on its own or something that I think is like in the news that someone might want to follow up on. But you don't even know that is currency too. Cause all you have to say is, I got a response back from Susan Davis from NPR and she has referred our, our story to X reporter, man, that's You can ride that. You can ride that for at least three weeks with a client. (laughs) (laughs) I also think too, it's like, uh, I, I try to have this philosophy of just kind of being generous with people because at some point you're going to need people to be generous with you. Yeah. Um, and sort of so put it out there. So the universe will bring it back to you. At some exactly. Point, you know? <laughs> like there's, there's going to be some Sunday afternoon where I'm slammed on a deadline and I need an expert in a field and I'm calling a PR person at seven on a Sunday and you don't want them to be like, Oh, you were that jerk that told me to, you know, go F myself when I called them <laughs> or oh, you were that nice reporter that forwarded my email. To right. The I can do desk. you a favor like, now. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that's a lot of, current it builds a lot of currency with people and it doesn't cost me anything to just be like nice to people even if I'm never ever going to write about the thing you're pitching me on yeah 
Well, I think that that's fair. And that works on both sides, right? I mean, if you're a PR person who's a jerk when a reporter writes a story that's not quite fair enough or not quite what you wanted to see, you have to have a nice exchange with them in order to expect that someday you guys will work together again. Yeah. <laughs> it's just not right the other way. Um, so, but you are, because you're in broadcast and because you are still on quarantine like the rest of us working from home, what has that looked like? How has that changed for you? Because I mean, so much of your work is really being in the halls of the Capitol and yeah. sort of being in front of people every day like how how has your work changed over the course of the last uh you know year plus two things i would say about that one on the whole it one of the things i will take away from this pandemic that was amazing to watch is that npr with its you know 700 plus employees on north capitol street went to a fully remote digital operation in the course of like 48 hours wow when the pandemic started, every single host, show directors, sound engineers, all the correspondents, like there was probably at any given time, there's probably hasn't been more than 30 or 40 people in the building, just the people that literally need to make sure the satellites are, you know, pointed in the right direction. Sure, yeah. But it was amazing to watch a news organization sort of like rise to that challenge. And also with all the additional logistical challenges of it being a broadcast operation. I mean, the, the hosts for the most part, have been hosting from their homes for the past year. Wow. Um, it's just been, it's been wild. And I, I, I have been totally amazed by NPR as an organization and all of my colleagues. If you think about any newsroom, like the variables of tech savviness in the workforce, right? Definitely, yeah. Um, and people just really embraced it. I think everyone just felt there was this, like, we're all in this together feeling about it. And mm -hmm. it was, it's been amazing to watch. The practicalities of working from home for me, I've been surprised by, like, I'd like to think if I was an A student before, I'm probably like a B plus student now. Mm -hmm. um, I think because I had been doing my job for so long, I, I know how to do it even if I'm remote and I have enough relationships that even though we, it, it's become much more phone work and Zoom work and text work, I know enough people that I feel like I'm staying on top of things. Yeah. I would say the difference is it's just not as much fun. Yes. I mean, like the, the joy of journalism is being out in the world and talking to people and being in places. And so even if I think I, I'm not missing it because for news quality, like I think we're covering the news as capably as close to as capably as we were before. It's kind of boring, right? It's yeah. just not as yeah. much fun as it was. Yeah. So I, I, there's a part of me that one hopes that our, we have changed our work life going forward. Like there's a part of me that, that would like more flexibility to be able to work from home on Definitely. days I need to yeah. because we've proven we know how to do it and mm -hmm. that we can do it. But there's also an equal part of me that is like itching to finally get fully vaccinated and be able to get out into the world a little bit more again. Definitely. Um, yeah, it, it's minimized the creativity of journalism, but it has not changed the productivity of journalism. Yeah. No, and that makes total sense. I'm hopeful that um, that we can kind of figure that out, that balance, especially in D.C., where like, you know, I mean, you spend an, you know, an hour in your car every day just getting to where you need to go. That's one less hour of productivity, you know, and, and there's so many other sort of uh, realities of just being able to get up and get to work and get your, yourself going. Um, Sue, so I'm curious to, to know if uh, over the course of time, like you've covered, you've covered Capitol Hill for a long time, obviously. And I'm sure that um, there are stories that stand out to you that were the ones that you enjoy covering the most, like what it, so Capitol Hill runs in a cycle, right? Capitol Hill is like, yeah. you know, it's kind of like a school year, right? I mean, we get back to work in September, and we take holidays off and we're off for the summer. What 
what in the congressional cycle, like what is your favorite time of year to cover? Like what, you know, is it leadership races? Like what stands out to you is like you look forward to that time because that's a time that, that you feel like it's, it's exciting for you as a journalist. I think it's always probably like the starts and the ends of things. Like a new Congress is always a really dynamic time, especially like what we're in right now with a new president and a new Congress mm-hmm. power shifts are always the most fun. I mean, if, if power is stagnant for a long time, the storytelling gets a little stagnant because you're totally right. I, you say it's like high school. The, the, the equivalent I would say is I would say Congress is a little bit like a soap opera. Like <laughs> some, some of the players change, but like there's something really familiar about it. And if you watched general hospital 20 years ago and then you haven't watched it and then you turn it on today you're like oh that guy's still alive like there's something (laughs) familiar about the rhythms of the place that's hilarious so changes in power dynamic are always i think when it sort of gets your synapses firing again so like having democrats take control of congress and the white house you're like oh this is going to be a really dynamic year of covering power because power has shifted and whenever the power shifts there's any number of iterations of stories that matter, not just about policy and the things they're trying to do, but sort of like the culture of Washington and how they're changing it. Um, so right, like the first 100 days of any new Congress and then always like the, the two months leading up to an election, right? Like I think going the 2022 midterms are gonna be fascinating because there's we're fighting this like historical precedence versus like do precedents matter anymore in politics? Like yeah. is everything being rewritten mm-hmm. or are we still held to the old rules and none of us know the answer to these questions if we're being honest? So there's something about being a political reporter right now that is a bit intimidating because in the past I feel like experience made you feel more confident in what you knew. And sometimes I wonder if all this experience is like clouding your brain to be able to see things clearly because all the things that we thought we knew about politics are shifting and oh, the old rules totally don't true. apply anymore. Oh, that's so true. I'm so glad you brought that up because that total to me, that resonates so much. I feel like so much of the model, like we keep trying to put, you know, the, the, four, the four Trump years, those years of like, well, this is the way it's going to go because this is the way historically it's always gone that didn't work, right? I mean, well, the polls say this, so this is what's going to happen. No, no, actually, we cannot put this square peg back into a a round hole. It no longer works that way. It's so different. And whether it's exciting or exasperating, I'm not so sure. I think it's probably a combination of both. But uh, being able to try to measure what's going to happen in midterms will be very different than what it has been in the past because there's a lot of unknown. Like what is the the X factor is the Trump factor, right? Like what impact does that still have? Like what what kind of um, influence will that have on outcomes? And and that's exciting and also kind of... um, worrisome, I guess, if you will, like, what is that going to look like for everybody after the midterms are through? Yeah, because we like to be predictive in this business. Like, mm-hmm. there's a reason why we have election forecasters and people like Charlie Cook and Sue Rothenberg. Like, we want people to tell us what's going to happen. And when we have to admit that we have no clue what's going to happen, that is both humbling and a little destabilizing, but also a little <laughs> exciting. And it, it makes you keep it fresh, right? Like it's no yep. force me to think about like who my sources are and who am I in touch with in politics? And, you know, are you talking to the people that are relevant in politics today? And that's something that is a reporter is like constantly evolving. Like you're never sourced up. You're always sourcing. Yes. And that is both like exciting, but hard because especially when you see like the change in politics we've had, you're like, Oh my God, like, I don't even know who the power brokers are anymore to get in touch with. So you're constantly trying to like expand your universe of people, you know, to make sure that you don't have those blind spots. Yeah. 
well, for so long, it was m- m- often the same group of people that you would go back to. Totally. And now it feels like there's been a total character shift. There's been a whole changeover and we have to figure out who all these new players and, and operators are. Um, so I'm going to do a little switch on us here. And I just want to, th- uh, because we're um, in the pandemic, because we're sort of living at home, because, you know, social distance is still part of our life. Um, after politics, after you turn off the radio, after you sort of sit down and, and have a glass of uh, of seltzer and sort of take a breath and, and reflect on the day, like what kinds of things are, are keeping you guys busy on the weekends, for instance? Like what, what are you looking forward to doing over the weekend when you get through a busy work week? Well, I have a toddler, so she kind of rules our life right yeah. now. But she's been... You familiar with the genre? Mm-hmm. Um, she has been, though, I mean, one, she's a delight. She's a really fun kid. But being a parent, as I'm sure many people you've talked to are, has been both like really challenging in the pandemic, but also so rewarding because it's kind of nice to deal with these little human beings who just have no clue about the world around them mm-hmm. and are just like, no, we're just going to take this morning. We had to like take all the sofa cushions off the sofa and build a house and like be ridiculous for 45 minutes. And she forces us to sort of be ridiculous, which mm-hmm. has been very healthy in these stressful times. Yeah, that's so cool. The thing that I would say that has probably been the best decision for me, and I'm both like embracing this, but a little bit embarrassed of it. I've totally joined the Peloton cult. Like I went from being a Peloton skeptic to like full on hashtag Peloton mom. That's awesome. Uh, good. And it's been great because I think part of this being cooped up in our houses, it was not good for us either. And so I think it was like last fall, we debated it for a while and I was like, let's just get it. And from both my husband and I, it's been really good. Like exercise has really been important to like de-stress. I agree. And it has been this, like, I thought it was too much of a luxury purchase, but it's become like such a good, healthy thing for us. And so I I feel like such a cliche whenever I talk about the Peloton, but I have, I have joined the cult and I have seen the light and I have been very grateful for it. It was the best purchase I made in the pandemic. That's perfect. But that's so, but that's so good. And I feel like I've talked to so many people who had the same feeling about Peloton, whether it's Peloton or, or uh, there's so many others, but Jason and I, uh, we did outdoor workouts for the first three months because our gym had closed. Yeah. And our neighbors were convinced, like, what is what is happening? They didn't, <laughs> they didn't even realize that we went to the gym a couple, you know, four or five days a week. So they were like, wow, the, the Millers are really getting their act together. <laughs> he and I thought, like, this is really funny. We do this all the time, but we're going to ride it out. And we enjoyed it. Are you still CrossFitting? We are. Yep. Yeah. For, so yep. you also probably look ridiculous when you're working out sometimes. Oh, for sure. I mean, and, you know, I, don't even say, I don't even say CrossFit anymore because it's well, that's a whole nother conversation, but yeah, it's another thing. Just like with Peloton, you know, that people sort of look at you and they're like, Oh God, here we go. You're one of those. But the truth of it is, is that I think it's not only does it make you feel great, but it's so good for your mental health. And it's also such a break from anything else that's going on in your world. I mean, toddlers and legislators probably share more in common than we actually want to sort of, (laughs) you know, we could draw the comparison all day long, but having that like full break where you can just go and like, just work it out. That's so healthy for all of us. It just is. It's fantastic. That's so, so good. Yeah, because the downside of working from home is it's like way more sedentary than I've ever been in my professional life. Like when you're on the hill, 
you're hitting 10,000 steps a day, not even trying. Like that's right. just like a Wednesday. And there was like days working from home where I would like look at my Fitbit or whatever and be like, <laughs> I've taken 800 <laughs> steps today. <laughs> from my bed to my house, yeah. back to the coffee maker. And, yeah, yeah, like I'm like forth. basically in a coma with the way <laughs> how much I'm moving. So I'm glad that I made that change. That's so awesome. Um, I'm so glad to hear you say that because I've heard that from so many people about exercise and getting out or being outside. Like it's so healthy for everybody. And then my last question always uh, for the podcast is who uh, would you recommend for a future episode to join me? Oh, that's a good question. You know, I am going to recommend a reporter who I love, who has been a mentor and a friend of mine is, do you know Jackie Combs? I certainly know who she is. I don't know her well. She's the best. Um, Jackie, when I worked at the Wall Street Journal, she was like the lead politics reporter uh, on the 2008 campaign. But Jackie is, I just think she has, she could give some great perspective on Washington because she's had a long career. Mm -hmm. She's covered multiple presidents, but she's, she came from the CQ world, right? So she gets like the internal nitty gritty budget and politics, but she's now um, an editor at the LA Times. And she's just someone who I always sort of seek out their political perspective. And I think she's just one of the most astute observers of politics and she's super fun to have a glass of wine with. Oh, so she awesome. could be uh, a really fun conversation. That's a great recommendation. Well, I'll make sure I'll tell, I will tell her that you recommended her. You should. Uh, and I will reach out and I will, I will let you know when the, when that episode comes together as well. Susan Davis, it is always so fun to catch up with you. I'm so, so glad to have you today. And I'm so glad that uh, all is well with you. And once maybe I'm vaccinated, I'll come over and do a CrossFit workout with you. Girl, that or wine, <laughs> one or the other. <laughs> one or the or both. <laughs> or maybe both. Thank you so much for being with me. And I'll talk to you soon. Talk to you. And that's today's episode of The Friday Reporter. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll see you next time. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, Shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. You're listening to Stop the Killing podcast. Join us as we take you behind the crime scene tape to explain global mass shootings and mass attacks. I'm Sarah Ferris, but more importantly, this is Catherine Schweitz, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. I spent five years as the FBI's top executive looking for answers to the mass shooting crisis. I've been at the shooting scenes. I've traced heroic acts of bravery. And I've sat silently and listened to the heart-wrenching stories from survivors. Amongst this horror, there is hope. We all hold the key to stop the killing. You just need to know how to unlock the door. Download Stop the Killing and be part of the solution. Search Stop the Killing on Apple, Spotify and all the usual suspects.